Today, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, three verses, we're going to talk about understanding the fear of God. One of the subjects missing from a lot of preaching today is the fear of God. Another subject missing is the holiness of God and the holiness of man and the holiness of the Christian, man and the life of the Christian. Last time we talked about holiness, this time we come right after that in Peter's writing to talk about the fear of the Lord. One of the reasons I go verse by verse in the Bible is because I understand that I as a Christian need a well-rounded Christian growth. I, I don't want to have a lopsided Christian life. I don't want to be too heavy on grace, nor do I want to be too legalistic on obedience. And the, really the only way to have a well-rounded Christian growth is to go verse by verse and take it as it comes, the whole counsel of God. One of the blessed freedoms of having a church where we are not driven by an agenda of numbers, but rather an agenda of Christ being formed within you, not quantity but quality, um, not fame but fullness. One of the blessed freedoms of that, not being a program-driven church, is that we are free to go verse by verse in the Bible and take it as it comes, and to grow by that. That brings us to talk about holiness as we did last time, and this time the fear of the Lord. What do you think of the fear of the Lord? Do you know what it is? Many people today don't, and as a result, they're missing out on so much. So in the passage before us, we're going to talk about that. Let's look at verse 17 down to 19. Peter is writing here, and he says, If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. If you want to take a passage for devotion and just sit down when you have a lot of time to be alone with God and wait upon Him, this is one of the finest passages you could ever go to. It is so rich with the love of God. So rich with challenge and exhortation and security. But what I want to show you here today, as it relates to the fear of the Lord and a holy life, is this. A holy life and the fear of the Lord comes from understanding our reverence for God. Peter is here motivating us to all of that by our reverence for God, our relationship with God here in these verses, and our redemption from God. Three wonderful things to impact your life and your relationship to the Lord. And I want to start with the first one, our reverence for God, right here in verse 17. Verse 17 is just loaded with truth for us here today. We see here that he talks about, at the end of the verse, you find the word fear. He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. What is that fear? It is a godly fear. It's the fear of the Lord. Now, 
We need to understand what it isn't so we can understand what it is. What do you think the fear of the Lord is? Well, first of all, it is not this. It is not a dread of God, an unhealthy dread. It is not being afraid of God. The reason I know that is because the Bible tells me that the love of Jesus Christ has come to me to cast out my fear. Fear has torment, but God's love casts out my fear so that His love has come to set me free from my fear. And yet at the same time I read of this fear here. So there is then another kind of fear and that's the fear of the Lord which is not an unhealthy dread being afraid of God. Rather it is this, it is a reverential awe, a holy reverential awe that I don't think in fact, I'm positive. You cannot find this. You don't experience it. You don't discuss it in any other walk of life. It is something completely unique to the Christian life. It is a reverential awe of God as the Holy One that then issues forth in a very healthy suspicion of my own self and selfishness. It is a reverential awe of God the Holy One that issues forth then in my life with a suspicion of self and all of self's ways. The idea becomes this. We are encouraged by God's love to come to Him freely. But we are not to come to Him flippantly. And that's the idea. So that it's a place of, of seeing God and His glory and really... If you look at the Bible and you see the millions and billions of holy angels, if you see the glory that is given to God in the universe, shouldn't we give Him that same place in our own hearts? It's that idea. Carries an element, I think, of holy wonder. I love to read Isaiah chapter 6. And there, Isaiah, they've just changed kings. And Uzziah has died. He was a, a very popular king with the people. The people are depressed. The nation is sinful and Isaiah goes in the temple to seek God for a solution. And as he's in there praying, God appears to him. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And Isaiah begins to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. He falls down on his face. And he says, woe is me, I am all undone. Why? Because suddenly he sees his own sin in a way he had never seen it before. And he was probably the godliest man in the nation at that time. And he sees the holiness of God and the splendor of God and he's in awe in a way that he never has before. And then he sees these angels there. <clears throat> and the Bible describes the angels as having these wings. And they cover their eyes with some of their wings and they fly with some of their wings. So there's this service and there's this reverence of availing themselves from the glory of God and they're out of their mouth they're crying holy, holy, holy before the Lord. Here is Isaiah, the glory like lightning. The words of the angels bursting forth in praise and the sense of his own sin in the face of the glory of God. He is filled with this reverential awe and wonder and God shows him that this is not something to cause an unhealthy dread as he has one of the angels come and cleanse him from his sin. And the need is made known of, of reaching the nation with the news of this holy God and the nation needs to repent and come back to him. And so the question comes, who is to go? 
And God cleanses this man so aware of his sin. And he says, you're the one to go. I'm a holy God. You're a sinful man with a right heart. So I cleanse your sin. And I send you back out to reach an unholy people to get right with the holy God. It is a sense of reverence and wonder and awe. That's what the fear of the Lord is all about. And God communicates his love to us even in the midst of it as he did with Isaiah. I would have to agree today as I look around the church today that A.W. Tozer, who sounds so cynical at times, but is so right on in so many of his assessments, he said once that the greatest need of the moment is that light-hearted, superficial religionists would be struck down to their knees with a vision of God high and lifted up and his train, his glory filling the temple. And I think that's right. It is a wonderful thing to have an awakening to the holiness of God, to come to a place of reverential awe and wonder in the Christian life. So that what is the fear of the Lord? It's to behold God in his glory, in his holiness, to behold yourself and your own sinfulness, to see him as he really is, yourself as you really are, and to have an, a respect and a reverence and an awe and appreciation for God that goes beyond the description of words in such a way that it impacts your life. So that another dynamic of the fear of the Lord, I think, is this. This whole idea of suspicion and self and self's ways. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I'm paranoid enough as it is. I mean this. I mean, part of the fear of the Lord is that you fear you would fall away from sweet fellowship with him. Richard Elaine put it this way. He said, he who knows what it is to enjoy God will dread his loss. He who has seen his face will fear to see his back. Have you seen his back after having seen his face? If so, you dread to lose that wonderful fellowship with him. For me, the fear of the Lord is not an unhealthy dread of God. It is a very healthy dread of my own selfishness, which would take me away from the God I love. And so the meaning of godly fear. But Peter here, also in verse 17, shows us the scope of it. The scope of it. He says... Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So here is Peter saying that the fear of God, this holy reverence, should have an effect on your lifestyle. And the extent of it would be your whole life. Your whole life. So from the time you begin to walk with Christ until the time you go to be with him... You are influenced by this holy awe of God all along the way. And I would suggest that it increases as you go. The closer you get to him, the more it increases and the more it affects your life. So he brings in the extent of this throughout your life. But he also reminds us to help us that we are pilgrims here. He talks about, I love the terminology in the New King James. He says, throughout the time of your stay here. I like that. It sounds so temporary, doesn't it? I travel around somewhat and I stay in hotels. One of the things I find in a good hotel is when you stand at the front desk, and I've worked in hotels as a bellman, some fine hotels, and my wife has worked across the desk as a front desk receptionist, so I'm well familiar with them. A great hotel, a good hotel, will be very concerned about your stay. So they'll get you all set up, they give you the key, the, bell, the ding, they ring the bell, the bellman comes, and 
And they're all concerned. And then as you walk away from the desk and the bellman says, don't worry, I'll bring your bags to your room. The last thing you hear is, enjoy your stay, Mr. Bond. Enjoy your stay. Now that implies I'm leaving. So when I come and leave and check out, one of the last things I hear walking out the door was, we hope you enjoyed your stay as you go on out the door. You see, you check in, but you know you're checking out. We are going to check out of this life. I love the words throughout the time of your stay. We are to remember we're moving through this world. We are to tread lightly in this world. Paul says your citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so our godly fear sweeps throughout our life. It, it gives us a light touch as we move through our life. We remember we don't belong to this world anymore. Then he brings up the issue of the time. He says, throughout the time of your stay here. This is the idea, I think, what the psalmist prayed. Lord, teach me to number my days. God, help me remember there is an end to all of this. Every day that I wake up, I should number my days. You know, when you're young, you think your days will never end. And then as you grow... You find them slipping by so quickly, you begin to number your days. And I think the fear of the Lord, the reverence of God is a way of helping us to do that. Peter brings it all out here. So the meaning of godly fear, the scope of godly fear, and then the power. The power of godly fear is this. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. All of a sudden now, I'm realizing a life filled with this holy reverential awe of God. Pete, uh, the Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord motivates us and really thrusts us forth to depart from evil. That if I really see the holiness of God and I really live near to Him, I will agree with Him on His feelings about everything. And I will abhor evil as he does. The fear of the Lord causes you to depart from evil. So what is the power of the fear of the Lord? It's this, balance. Balance. If you wonder, how do I get a balance between appreciating grace and becoming too overly obedient, pre preoccupied with obedience to the point of legalism? How do I find the balance of that? I'll tell you in one word. Awe, reverence, fear. They're all saying the same thing. It's the fear of the Lord. You see, the power is this, to balance out the clearest possible understanding of free grace as a Christian, so that you understand the grace of God and you live a graced life on the one hand, and you understand the holiness of God, and you live an awe-filled, reverence-filled life on the other. And when you blend the two together, enjoying grace as yet a sinner, and striving for Christ's likeness at the same time, you have grace and holiness blended together. And the balance comes from the fear of the Lord in your life. The fear of the Lord in your life. It is a wonderful thing. So, our reverence for God. Let's go to the second main thought here, and that is our relationship with God. Our relationship. Peter here draws us to this wonderful reality that we have as Christians. He says, if you call in verse 17... If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Here is an interesting thing. 
I think we tend to think in, in the Christian life of God as a judge only in terms of the non-Christian. In other words, when I say God is judge, what do you think of? The great white throne judgment. And you're thankful you're going to miss it as a Christian. I'm very thankful for that. There's a lot of horror movies put out in Hollywood. And yet, no human being will ever know horror in the truest sense until they hear the words, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, into everlasting darkness. I never knew you. That will be the most horrible moment for any human heart ever. That's the great white throne judgment. But you see, by the blood of Christ, you can miss all that. So I'm so thankful I'm going to miss all that. And so then I come to Peter's sentence here and he says, Father and judge. Well, how does that work out? Because this is not dealing with unbelievers in this verse at all. It's only children of God here. Here is how it works out. First of all, he is our father. So he's bringing us to this warm, unfailing love of God as our father. Remember, he's motivating us to holiness. I find it to be one of the greatest things in life that my father is in heaven. Jesus said when you pray, pray our father who art in heaven. Those of you that grew up Catholic, you could go right on with that, couldn't you? You could really recite that. Our Father who art in heaven. That is so wonderful because heaven, he's perfect. My Father in heaven is perfect. He's not like any earthly father. And he has an unfailing love for me. All earthly fathers fall short in some way. And yet, my Father in heaven, his love never fails for me. So, Peter warms my heart with this fatherhood of God for me, this unfailing love. But then I find he says that this father is also my judge. Now it's not the great white throne, so what is it? It is this. He says here, if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. What it is he's talking about here is an examination. It is a consistent examination. Consistent and thorough because the eye of the Lord is in every place, beholding the good as well as the evil. So, God is my judge as my father. If you don't remember anything else today, go away with this echoing in your head. Father, judge. Father, judge. Father, judge. Judge, father. This is the relationship you have with God. And the judge idea amounts to this. Two-pronged examination and discipline. That's what it's all about. So, here is this perfect father. What does he do with me as his child? He, he examines me consistently. Why? Because he loves me so much. Does anybody here know Romans 8.28? Could you quote it in your mind? Could you recite it? What does Romans 8.28 say? It says, I'll read it to you. We all know that all things work together for the good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. That is one of the most wonderful promises in all the Bible. But let me ask you a question. What is that purpose? Those called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Do you know? You read on. We can grow a lot by reading on. Often in our Bibles. In verse 29 it says this. To be conformed to the image of Christ. All things work to good in my life. Because why? Because God has called me. For what? To conform me into the image of his dear son. To take a broken down 
wretched, guilt-ridden sinner, to free that broken-down, guilt-ridden sinner, to adopt him with the rights of full privileges as a full adult son, to make me truly his own, and then do what with me? Work on me until he has so freed me from sin day by day by day, and finally launched me into his kingdom in eternity that I have become perfectly like him. The whole idea is to mold me in the end into the image of his dear son, which will be absolute freedom, absolute joy, absolute glory, and absolute holiness. So why does he examine me now as my judge in this life for that? He searches my life to see where the changes need to be made, and that's what the examination is all about, and it's consistent, it's every day. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to do something about it. And that's where the discipline comes in. You see, as judge, it's examination and it's discipline. And the thing I like about the discipline with God is that it's consistent. It's consistent. Hebrews tells us that every son that comes into God's kingdom, every child, is disciplined by God as their father. Now, I'll tell you a secret about our home. I read some research that indicates that the way people get close is by telling secrets to one another. I'm going to tell you a secret, okay? Don't tell anyone. I'll tell you a secret of our home. One of the secrets of our home is this. In raising our children, our whole approach is the same as God's with us, as His children. How do we raise our children? We give them consistent love. Constant, constant, constant love. And we also give them consistent discipline. Constant, constant, constant discipline. So that our kids do not get away without being loved. And also, our kids do not get away with anything. <laughs> they do not get away with anything. Our love to them is real enough that every day we're the same with our discipline. I think one of the worst things you can have in a household is a husband committed to discipline and the wife isn't. Oh, now, honey, your father was a little hard on you, wasn't he? I know, he's kind of mean to me, too. Oh, or the mother's committed to discipline. And then the father, come on, let's go, you sweet little thing. I'll buy you an ice cream. Your mommy's so mean to you. <laughs> That's awful. Or how about this? One week the wife is committed to discipline and the husband, ah, oh, he's just not in the mood. I'm tired. I'm working hard. But the following week, he happens to be in the mood. So, wonder of wonders, a month out of the year, suddenly they're both aligned, back to back, mother and father committed to discipline. And the children, they kind of go a little crazy. They don't know how to handle all of that. That's quite a thing, you know, an occurrence in the house. But the worst thing of all is when the two are not committed to consistent discipline. If you live in your home like that, if you as a husband are dragging your wife down by your lack of commitment to discipline or vice versa, you wives, you're going to raise crazy mixed up kids. But you see, God doesn't raise crazy mixed up kids because he loves us with an unfailing love and he disciplines us with an unfailing discipline. It's consistent. And that is so important. Further, it is impartial. You see, his discipline is impartial. Look at the text. He says, without partiality, each one. You know what that means? It means a lot to me, this. No favorites in God's house. No favorites. One of the most destructive things parents can do, or a parent, is to have a favorite among the children. To whisper in their ear, you're my favorite. 
You're my special one. The others, they're okay. I love them too, but you all, you're the smartest on the block. You're the cutest in the school. <laughs> this kind of thing, you know, it, you develop an egotistical monster by raising a kid like that, not to mention the agony in the hearts of the other children as they have to watch this. If you grew up in a home and you saw this, you know what I'm talking about. If you grew up in a home and you were the favorite, you know the struggles you've had to go through, unable to receive rebuke in church. Someone comes and corrects you. How dare you correct me? I'm the cutest. I'm the smartest. I'm mommy's special one. <laughs> well, wake up and join the family where there are no favorites. <laughs> Without partiality, each one. I love that. I love that. I think it would do us a lot of good to study our Bibles watching for this whole thought of God not being partial. It's prominent throughout the Bible. Let me just read you a few verses. In Deuteronomy 10.17, it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. Hey, talk about reverence and awe. Man, out of the abundance of the heart, this is some reverence and awe here. God of gods, Lord of lords, great God, mighty and awesome, and who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. I love that. 1 Samuel 16.7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance, his appearance or the height of his stature. Why? I refuse him. Because the Lord does not look as man looks. He doesn't see as man sees. He looks not as man does on the outward. The Lord looks on what? The heart. Peter was preaching to a bunch of Gentiles and up until that time he thought God loved only Israel effectively would never consider mingling with a Gentile God tells him one day as he's sitting outside on the balcony near the ocean he says Peter I want you to go witness to a bunch of Gentiles <laughs> not a chance so God deals with him there sends him down to Cornelius and his band he had a rock band Cornelius the old King James says Cornelius and his band I guess they had a band but uh, he goes down to see Cornelius and he takes him to concert or whatever. Anyhow, he preaches to Cornelius and his band. And as he's preaching, he's just preaching along. All of a sudden, he sees the Spirit of God fall on them. They start speaking in tongues and glorifying God. It's all amazing. And he, what was his conclusion? There's no partiality, he said. I perceive there's no partiality with God. It was a milestone day in Peter's life. Romans 2.11, there's no partiality with God. Ephesians 6, 9, no partiality with God. Colossians 3, 25, no partiality with God. So what it comes down to is this. There are no spoiled children in God's family. You know why? He loves us too much to allow for that. He loves us too much to allow for that. I love what John Blanchard has said, speaking of Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John. He said, Jesus did not pray that his father would take Christians out of the world. He prayed that he would take the world out of Christians. And that's what it's all about, you see. This great relationship we have with God. So we have our reverence and our relationship. Let's go to the third thing, which is our redemption from God. This is so heartwarming. Peter says in verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your father. He says here, 
I want you to notice your redemption. See the word redeemed? The thing I like about this to begin with is that God even made it possible. When I consider my life, I don't know about you, but I regret my sin. Look back on my life, the sins I've committed that at once I enjoyed and did them because I wanted to, and at the same time I hated. You, know, you understand that experience? I regret my sin. I regret my life of rebellion to God. Wonder of wonders, He has made redemption possible. He has offered it to me. A holy God has made the offer of redemption to me, a sinful man. What is redemption? Redemption is effectively to be set free by the paying of a price. You see, in the time of Peter's writing, there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. Millions of them. So that when these people were gathering together in churches, so many of them were converted slaves. Most of them, in fact. When he uses this word redemption, the people reading, it would mean so much to them. You know what it would mean to them? They would see in their minds slaves lined up to be sold, mistreated, beaten often by their masters, captured into slavery, many of them in war, kidnapped into slavery, many of them. So like the world of sin that we came out of. The reader would think in their mind of that lineup and they would think of a rare occurrence that would happen when someone would walk up, survey the slaves and go up and say, I want this one and they would pay a high price for them and then they would pay an even higher price for this reason. They didn't want them to make them a slave, they wanted them to make them free. So if you want to make them free, it's going to be an even higher price. That would happen. That's what redemption is all about. Paying a high price to set a slave free. And this is what God has made possible for you. It's so tremendous. We understand what it means to be redeemed, but what are we redeemed from? It's interesting the terminology Peter uses here. He says, you were redeemed from, notice, an aimless conduct. Literally, literally, the Greek implies a worthless life. A worthless life. Now listen, if you start at that, if you jump at that, you're offended by that. You mean to tell me that just because I don't follow Jesus, I have a worthless life, I'm a good person. I work hard. I'm responsible. Fine. Fine. That's good. <laughs> you ought to be that way. Everybody ought to be that way. But listen to Romans 6.21. What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? Your sin. You see, for the end of those things, Romans says, is death. You live a life without Christ, you live unforgiven. You live a life without Christ, you live in bondage to sin. You live a life without Christ in the bondage of sin, you live in daily guilt. And at the end of your life, you're separated from God forever. Along the way, you live in shame, even if you hide it. And at the end, what you find is successful, responsible as you might have been, to be sentenced to life without God forever is to have lived a worthless life. Peter says you're redeemed from a worthless life. Boy, I thank God for that. Christ brings all the meaning into my life. Redeemed from a worthless life. And notice what else. Redeemed from the mold of a godless life passed down to you by godless parents. You see it? First Peter 1.18 from your aimless life received by tradition from your fathers. 
What is he saying? Well, the Jews at that time were godless. They named the name of God, studied the book of God, but they were godless. So the tradition passed down to the Jews was that of a religion that was godless. A salvation by works that you would earn, that left you in the end unsaved. Well, for them, it would be freedom from that. But how about the others? Well, like so many of us, it would be the tradition of a godless life passed down from your parents. What does that mean? It means this, the parent cusses, the child cusses. The parent is an alcoholic, the child is an alcoholic. One of the biggest phrases of our day is adult child of an alcoholic. It's one of the biggest phrases of our day. Why? The sins of the parents are visited on the children. Adult, parent, drug addict, child, drug addict. Cocaine addict, child's born addicted. Heroin addict, child's born addicted. And if it isn't that way, it's by example. Redeemed from what? A godless mold forced upon you by the parents that raised you. I thank God that there is a way out. My mother grew up in Mormonism. Many of my relatives are still Mormons. Big time Idaho, Utah, Mormon people. And my mother grew up in that. And one day walking through the Mormon temple in L.A. in the grand opening... Halfway through, she looked around, something inside of her said, this is all lies, get out now. And she turned to the guide and said, this is all a bunch of hogwash. And he threw a fit and threw her out. And she walked away. Today, she's a born-again Christian. God, by His grace, gave her a way out of a long tradition of godlessness, a machinery pumping people into hell year after year, generation after generation. Redeemed from what? A godless mold forced upon you with the intent of leaving you in a godless life. Boy, this is the grace of God. This is the redemption of God. He's made it possible. How I thank God for it. But not only that, He's made it free. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely free. You say, how do I get this? Just come and get it. That's all. Come and get it. Believe Jesus died for your sins because you are a sinner. Believe He rose again to give you new life in Him. Believe that if you will turn from your sins to embrace Him, He will accept you and forgive you. That's how. You come and get it. Thomas Watson put it so well when he said, Christ's blood has value enough to redeem the whole world, but the virtue of it is applied only to such as believe. You must come and get it, but it's free. I read about a man this week that very intense story. It really struck me of the grace of God. Not only is it free, but He's waiting for you. Even for the worst of you. It's never too late if you will come. Lady Mary Fitzgerald was a deeply spiritual woman. She had an only son who was continually resisting every effort to make him recognize the urgency of accepting Christ in his life. Sinking deeper into sin, he finally committed murder. And he was sentenced to death by hanging. Everyone who tried to minister to his spiritual needs found him hard and defiant. On the day of his execution, a local pastor came and began to plead with him to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he was pleading with him until the last moment when they put the noose around his neck, and they were getting ready to spring the trap door beneath him so he would fall and be hanged. He stayed there till the last minute. The tragedy is, is that the man continued to reject right up to the last minute, and when the trap was sprung, however, the man was still found cursing God of all things. 
can't imagine cursing God going into your death to face him. But something happened that was amazing. The rope broke. <laughs> the rope broke and he just fell to the ground. He got up, staggering around on his feet, shaken, and all of a sudden he became a contrite sinner, begging that he be given another half hour before they got a new rope and that he would be able to talk to the pastor. You know what happened? He sat down, he talked with the pastor, he opened his heart, he prayed and asked God to forgive him for his sins. He said, can I have a piece of paper and a pen? They said, yes. He said, I want to write my dear godly mother who pleaded with me my whole life to find Christ, to give my life, to find freedom and forgiveness in him. And I have found it by a fluke, freak accident. I've been given a second chance. I want to tell my mother, Christ is mine. I'm going into his arms now. He wrote the note. They put the noose around his neck and he quietly went into eternity. You see, it's free. It's yours. Even if you've rejected, you can still come now. Come to him today and receive it. Redemption is made possible. Redemption is free. One last thought here for you today. He paid the highest price for it. You see, it's free to you, but very costly to God. Very costly. We were redeemed here, it says in verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Have you ever thought about the blood of Christ? I think often we mention the blood of Christ, we just say it in passing as part of our Christian jargon, but have you thought about it? They took him and arrested him and they began to hit him with their fists and he began to bleed eventually. Others came with these long rods and they beat him with the rods and he bled from that. Finally, Pilate took him and he had him tied up, chained up, bent over so his back, the skin of it, would have been stretched as tight as possible. Then they brought a whip. The whip had nine cords on it. At the end of every cord were bits of bone and glass and metal designed to hit that tight skin and grab hold of it and tear it off of his back. So bleeding already, they began to whip him, tearing the flesh off of his back. By the time they finished, he was no longer recognizable as a man. And then they took a crown of thorns and pressed it down on his head and he began to bleed more. But that wasn't enough for them. They took him out and they took big, long spikes and they nailed them through his hands. And they nailed them through his feet. And more blood flowed. And then, as if that wasn't enough, one Roman soldier rushes up with a spear and thrusts it into his side. And more blood came out. Redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. He bled for you. He died for you. And it isn't just the fluid, it's the life that he gave. He poured out his life. That's what the blood is all about. He poured out his life for you. The precious blood, his life for yours. The precious blood, why precious? Because it's precious to the Father who gave the only Son. Peter says there's a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know what he had in mind when he said that? Every Jew would know. Jews would, many of them, raise sheep. And as Passover time drew near, they would select the sheep, even go buy one if they had to. 
And the sheep that they would select out of their own flock or to buy one would be one without blemish and without spot. It would be the finest lamb from among the whole flock. You know what they would do? Then they would raise it. It would become part of the household, really. And with this perfect spotless lamb, you would grow to have this relationship. But when Passover came, you would take this lamb, who now meant so much to you, and you would offer that lamb as a sacrifice for your sins. Why? So that you would understand the pain of forgiveness. You would understand the cost of the forgiveness of your sins. And you see, all of that was simply a picture of the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish, the only Son, God's only Son, who grew to be only 33, and then his life was taken from him. You see, it was hard, it was costly for God the Father to give his only Son, but he gave him because he loves you so much. Precious to the Father who gave him. I love what Octavius Winslow said. Who delivered up Jesus to die? He said, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, and not the Jews for envy, but rather the Father for love for you. Precious to the Father, precious to the Son, because the Son is the one who died. You see, the wonder of the cross is not the blood, but whose blood? Christ's blood the blood of the Son of God for you. And the wonder is, not the blood, but whose blood, to what purpose? The purpose of forgiving your sins. Precious to the Son who died, John Flavel once said that Christ loves holiness so much that he's willing to buy it for you with his blood. Precious to the Son who died. Precious to the Spirit who applies His blood to your life. You know, Ephesians says that we, through Him, Jesus, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. The entire Trinity involved in your redemption, your forgiveness. The precious blood, precious to the Father, precious to the Son, precious to the Spirit. And you know, precious to who else? You. When you're forgiven of your sin by it. You see... Think of it this way. Your forgiveness has been signed in tears, sealed by blood, written, as it were, on heavenly parchment that was covered with a list of your sins. Because the Bible says God keeps a record of the sins of every human being. Across His record of your sins in heaven, when you come to Christ, is written with the handwriting of God and the blood of Christ forgiven, forgiven, forgiven across every sin on the list. Signed in tears, sealed in blood, written on heavenly parchment, recorded in eternal archives, the black ink of the indictment of your sin is written all over with the red ink of the cross. Precious blood, the precious blood of Jesus, never has the word precious meant so much as it means when it is linked with the blood of Jesus. Is his blood precious to you today? If it is, you have the highest motivation for holiness and the greatest reason for reverential awe. If it isn't precious to you today, it can become precious. Take the step, open your heart, ask him to forgive you, 
and his blood will cleanse you and you will find the preciousness of the blood of Jesus and the longer you walk with him throughout your pilgrimage the more precious his forgiving blood will be to you let's pray shall we father our hearts are overwhelmed by this great love to see your glory and to behold our sin is a striking thing to see your redemption made possible and to see it offered for free to us is an amazing and wonderful thing and yet to behold the high price paid is to behold your great love for us God open our eyes to this great love and may we be drawn by the cords of this love into a life of reverence and awe that is mingled with boundless gratitude for those of us that have been cleansed by this precious blood and may we go on to live a holy life for you because we love you so very much and we ask this in Jesus name amen